We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Tonight, we're, instead of running a game, we're going to be taking a, a kernel, a story seed, and developing it and seeing where it goes. Not necessarily to the point that it is fully ready to be a game, but to show you a bit of the thought process that goes on behind the scenes and how we take that initial idea and turn it into something that you can build an entire campaign around. I, I think the idea where it, the story itself can come. Yes, exactly. Um, and again, this won't be the final thing because Anyone who's been running a DM or writer can tell you ideas are living things. And they, uh, when, when, even when you think you're done, you often aren't. But, uh, someone who could say that better than me is joining me tonight. Would you care to introduce yourself? Yes, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jared Sir, host of Your V Tigers and writer of a book by the same name. I'll actually try to plug myself properly once and for once and describe it as such. I do this all the time. When I actually try to go into the script, I fuck myself over. So Here Be Tigers is a tale, is a tale about two friends, Adam and Connor, one who's owed a wish and one who wants to save a life, and how they hope to set things right. I, to your point, did not know that was what the story would be about until quite a long way since the process, and I still sometimes struggle with trying to say it, because trying to define a thing that is not yet fully finite is weird, particularly when most of the beings within it have their own. Uh, yeah, Neil Gaiman uh, was once, or Gaiman, I, 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 um, I should say, was once asked about the Sandman series, but the, um, what it was about to describe it simply. And he was able to do so, but this was after it was already done. And his answer was, the king of dreams must choose to change or to die. And he makes his choice. A long time ago, this is 14 years ago now, back in grad school, when I had a story structure class, Sid Evil as a mystery writer, had us write down what our book should be about, what the theme of it was. And what I wrote at that time, when I thought this would be a book, just a simple, quiet little book that I'd be done with again and not have be my life in so many ways. The theme I wrote then was, there is no heaven or hell that is not a man's own making. And that is still... Quite true, I think, in interesting ways in the narrative. But toward the end of my time at USC, we had the other end of the writing, which was the business, at which point our professor, Paul Broncado, said, right, so what's your book about and how can you promote it? And I looked and I went, I don't know, it's not done. She said, well, figure it out and tell me. <laughs> and that began the other harder part, which was how do you tell someone who knows nothing about the book or why they should care about it, why they should care? And I forget why exactly. Maybe it was when I started the Patreon. I sat down and went, well, what the fuck is the book actually about? And what I finally wrote was, Here Be Tigers is a tale about memory loss and the flow of time. But mostly it's about Adam and Connor. Our two friends, Adam and Connor, one who's out of wish and one who wants to save her life. And how they hope to make things right. It's a bit more about how this isn't the first time they've tried. And the book will go through the two times more. Not perhaps the first and final, but the last and final. But when I realized that, there was just this very simple relationship between these two characters and all of the struggle and strife that evolves out of that. It reminded me of something else that Steeple said, which was, start simple, find the complexity. So here's the simple idea that is the kernel for uh, tonight's brainstorming session. And it basically boils down to this. What do the mayflies think? When the world starts to get dark, uh, for those of you who don't know, mayflies are incredibly short-lived creatures. At least once they enter the mayfly stage, uh, once the you know the, they are fully adult, they live only 24 hours. It's enough time to um, fly around, mate, and produce the next generation of mayflies. So they have no context for day and night. They don't know that the world endlessly repeats like that. So what does the mayfly think when the world starts to get dark? That got me thinking, okay, what if 
something is happening to the world. Let's make this a standard uh, D&D-style fantasy world. But the world is changing. But un- unlike, you know, some evil coming across the right land, unlike Sauron coming with a, his ring to cover all the world in darkness or anything like that, what is happening is terrible, but it is natural and inevitable. And, and, the, and the thing that occurred to me was, okay, so while everyone else is running around trying to figure out how to stop the world from sliding into whatever it is, I think the idea I came up with around that point is a new sun is appearing or something like that. The elves are sitting there going, yeah, we remember when this happened last time. And from our point of view, it wasn't all that long ago. And all of a sudden, you've got this divide where instead of the classic good guys being the elves, the dwarves, the humans, the, the halflings and all of that, now you've got the elves opposing everyone else. Possibly some of the older dwarves, remember, too. Maybe. I don't know. Well, it's not even per se the elves. In a sense, the elves here are a stand-in for all the long... Exactly. The fae, the immortal. Those things that are part of the natural world and the cycles. Mm-hmm. And it's not like humans weren't around the last time it happened. They just don't remember. They they don't. Their history doesn't show it. You know. Well, how much of that story would have predicted? exactly, or how much of it would have been misinterpreted if a, if a, you know a scholar was looking through the books for you know like this this event called the great you know rising of the sun, he'd assume you know it was some fairy tale about how the sun the sun that he knew first rose. He wouldn't assume that. You know, there's a second sun, for instance. Or it's a, a day of revelation, a day of judgment. If who you are, if you only know who you are through the life you live in the dark, what happens finally when all in that last moment is revealed and you can see everything clearly that you couldn't before? How terrifying would mm-hmm. it be? All the things you're so accustomed to not seeing are now suddenly real. And so here's this great upheaval, the world changing. Wars are going to be fought because resources are going to shift. Things are going to happen. Uh, there are all sorts of little conflicts. You can- Wouldn't there be a, an incredible balloon, a burst of life of things that couldn't only thrive? Or there will be, an inc- well, yes, of new things, whereas all the old things that adapted that people know are going to die. I know one of the ideas I had for if, you, if you're going to go down the classic D&D routes is, well, you've got all the drow and the dwarves that uh, live underground, but now everyone's going to want to live underground, and it's not like the drow and the dwarves are going to give up their spot. So I have a foolish question. If everything is dark, how many of them would stay underground if what is below is the same as what's in the sky? Well, that's, uh, and I guess that's the first question. Well, let's define the nature of the emergency, the, the nature of what's happening. Because sure. uh, I, I think three different ideas have been mentioned so far. One is, it's the world is getting dark, like the sun is going away. One is, this the world is dark and the sun is coming back. And the third is, a different sun is coming. So the world is as we understand it, but something's about to change it that seems alien, but is in fact normal if only we were long-lived enough to know. So here's the thing I always find fascinating with fantasy. We, particularly if we're going to go with traditional Tolkien-esque. Sure, why not? It gives us, it gives us a good uh, context to work on. Right, or the even if not Tolkienist, the idea that you have the long-lived, lie the mortals who have their alien-like culture, you have the craftsman-like underground race. These are truths that we understand well. With those in mind, what keeps the humans, for instance, from not actually being a mayfly, from not, from not having a life that is entirely confined within that brief night. However brief that is, of course, being relative to the species or the one we're inquiring about, but what if the humans only know life in the dark? What if they only know all of these strange, to perhaps the elves and those things that thrive only in the light? What if that is the norm, and suddenly this bright time coming is the breaking of life, is the breakage of everything? I, I get part of it, too. Is what in, other, in other words, let's let's play with the idea of Let's keep it along the lines of um, what is the may. We'll switch it to morning. What does the mayfly think at the beginning of day? So whatever is in the sky that people know, whatever light and day and night cycle people that humans understand isn't really a day and night cycle. Now you can we could get into the weeds about whatever their 
normal. Right. I mean, humans are usually the viewpoint character. So let's assume for the sake of argument that what if we were transported to this world before this great event happened? And so it's just the, 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 the it would look a lot like our world with a day night cycle like ours. It's just not as bright as everyone who's longer lived knows it should be. So now we're talking about Alaska. Yeah, we, you know what? I'm actually fine with that. Yeah, let, let's do it like that. There's a, there, let, let, we can actually say it's a dim sun, but we can also let the audience, you know, fill in their own ideas of what it's supposed to be like. Let's, yeah, I like that idea. That the, the idea is it's a dim sun that, and, and now the, the, the bigger one is coming back. I don't know what hit it before. An eyelid. Oh, that's in a D&D setting. That is absolutely fine, isn't it? Ah, something's been asleep. Yeah, that's that's absolutely fine. And now it's daytime and that thing is woken up. And that thing really has nothing to do with uh, the, the humans or anything like that. It has no animosity. It has no... No, no. It is the Tarrasque. Because what destroys worlds at the end of time but the beast of all... Right, but it's not going to, unlike the, the Tarrasque as we, we would think of it, it's not going to come and eat the world. Like, if that was the case, the elves would be all in a panic. Oh, my goodness. But, no, but, it, but it is, because it destroys everything and remakes it. The Tarrasque traditionally is a force of nature. It is an inevitable end to things. But what people construe that as... If the sun arises, the elves might go, oh, this is part of the sea. This is yeah, the and that, I, that's, I think, what I wanted. The elves think of this as a season. The dwarves think of it as, to the extent that they have records of it, they think about it as maybe a, some think of it as, as uh, what drives them from the surface, but some think of it as a boom time. A boom time. So on the, on the most recent episode of Here We Tigers, toward the end, we were talking about the setting salt and wounds, which has been online for a while. But the idea is that you're living on a terrasque. What if, and I'm just flipping the idea here for a second, we're inside. So, of course, when it opens its eyes, they're like... I would go with that one, except that, unfortunately, there is a um, a game that already explores living inside a giant beast. Let's put that aside. Let's put that aside and just keep the idea of a whatever the region I mean, is being at. I mean, lar- lar- I, think, I think our touchstone should largely be... Like we're out of winter. Winter is over. And, and so the world is about to, I like your idea of the world is about to bloom. And that's terrifying to people who've only known winter. And violent and rough. Oh, yes. And loud. And, it's actually, we're talking, we're talking the firebird from the suite. Yes. The musical suite. Just that monstrous. And the elves have been looking forward to this because that's this is this is when the world comes alive for them. <laughs> no, Dave, this is their bacchanalia. Potentially, yes. Uh, like I don't know, I don't know that they'll like necessarily go like wild and revel, but they will celebrate. The elves are a Dionysian Apollonian divide. They wait this whole time in austere quiet and silence, perfectly measured in their... Oh, do you want to... Are you actually trying to go back towards a a classic seely, unseely kind of thing? Yes, but there's... Of course. Thing. It's just a... It's, it, they are Orpheus emerging again from the underground, having practiced their tunes to see life again now that... And, and they're not... The oh, and that would be a wonderful bit of, uh, like, terror, because it's not that they're going to go around conquering or slaughtering or, or anything like that, but seeing the normally composed elves all of a sudden be reveling and celebrating and and full of life is, is terrifying because it, it seems like they've been taken over. It's mayflies and butterflies. They're caterpillars for so long. They're in the cocoon for so long. Not it's it, it's mayflies and bears. No, it's not mayflies and bears. I'm wrong. It's mayflies and magicicatas. Yeah, there you go. It, it, it's the, 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 well, I wanted something that, that, that is, uh, is different in winter than it is in summer, uh, but it still exists in winter. Like, like most insects, you're going to, are going to be bury themselves underground. That's not true. It's that idea that they're, you can interact with them, but they are austere. They are quiet. They are measured. They are silent. There are a few of them and far between. So perhaps you could even take the idea of the classic, like in Forgotten Realms, the Baelnorn, the guardian, the elven guardian spirits, those who stay awake when everything else mm-hmm. sleeps. Oh, God. There's a series you and Steven should both watch because, of course, we like sci-fi, horror, and post-apocalyptic narratives. Land of the Lustrous. One of the core myths is that mankind has been divided into three 
types, bone, flesh, and soul. And you don't hear about that until about halfway through the season of the show because there are people, you're introduced at first to people made of rare gems, and that's their bodies. They exist forever. If they break, they lose parts of their memories, but they can rebuild themselves. And eventually one of them finds a jellyfish. And then a jellyfish person tells the story of how the jellyfish are the flesh. But prior to that, you've encountered these horrifying monstrosities, the Lunarians, that come down and try to murder the people of stone for their bodies to take back and admire, or something like that. But the question starts to go, if that is the soul, these murderous, awful, destructive, incomprehensible, speechless things are the soul of humanity, and it is Lovecraftian, effectively. They come down as these strange, divine, Buddha-like beings that if you cut them open look like the remnants of a lotus blossom, which I don't know if you've ever seen after the pandemic. I've seen a lotus seed pod. They're really nasty looking. Yeah, they're horrifying. So look, think, imagine if you were to cut a Maitreya Buddha inside and find that. And in five, yeah, yeah. But by, by the way, just as a side note for everyone listening, the term for that is uh, the there are people who it's not a real phobia, it's never been recognized as such, but that feeling of you know disconcertingness around irregularly shaped holes like look up a lotus seed pod you'll know what i'm talking about look up the back of a uh Suriname toad and you'll know what i'm talking about it's called trypophobia well not even that i think i think it's the lotus or it's one of the, if it's not the lotus it's one of the others but the there's also the skull-like remnants that are the structure holding the petals in place that these things that were wonderful mm-hmm. are horrifying when you remove the things we find appealing and I, I guess that's why this idea of the elves going through that severe transformation. Uh, and and I think that that gives us a good indication of what the first conflict of the campaign is. Uh, not the first story, but the first ongoing conflict is that a number of elves, not all of them, preferably some that the characters know, seem like there's there's signs of an impending doom. And it seems like these elves that we thought were so trustworthy are trying to bring it about. And there's going to be this... They're joyful. Right. And it's only some of them so far. Others are, you know, haven't gotten to that point yet. And so there's this, there will be this struggle to stop the elves that have suddenly gone crazy and seem to be trying to bring about an apocalypse only for the culmination of this first arc. And this arc might only be a couple of stories. I mean, I'm not talking about this huge epic arc. To find out... They're not trying to bring it about. It's happening whether you like it or not. They're celebrating because it means the sun is coming back. And they, they you know, and, 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 you know, and life is coming back. And, oh God, what if they, in addition to, what if they have a way of preserving or desiccating themselves so that those who, those who are least like, who are least able to sustain themselves during those long periods of the dark can be revived and vivified. So there's your undead. Ah, uh, it could be, it could indeed be the undead. It could be that the, all of the legends of the elves just kind of receding from society, the, though in, in Tolkien's world, the, the gray havens or whatever, or the, the, the land beyond the sea, uh, is really just their way of saying, yeah, they've gone into hibernation and only the, and so the, all the elves slowly receding from the world, it hasn't been because their time is over. It's been because so few of them remain awake. That, that's a it's a classic even in the Dragon Age series is the uh, idea of Illusionera, which is the eternal or permanent rest that they can sometimes awaken from. But it is the final sleep, and to humans it would seem yes when your elven friend goes through this burial, this receding away where they don't sleep, they no longer speak to you. They pra- they only dedicate themselves to one incredibly important thing, whether it's brewing or crafting an instrument for your entire lifetime. Oh, and that would also explain why elves never seem to sleep. That the, they just do their their momentary, you know, reveries or whatever. Because they daydream. Most of the elves are asleep. These are the few that have been staying up to kids to keep guard, as it were. And actually, those that are celebrating the coming of the day, many of them are celebrating it because it means they're going to get to take a nap. They're not going to sleep through the entire day, but they are. But so all your friends are about to disappear too. Those few that can explain it are too tired to do so. And they're too touched because they've been awake way for a long, long time. It also, I wonder what kind of autom- automation. Actually, no. I wonder 
So let's let's move away from right. that for a second to talk about the other way. Well, and what's and what's going to happen? So I guess there are two ways we can go about this. What is actually going to happen, which should give us a good indication of what's ever what everyone's going to do, uh, or what other people are aware that this is going to happen. Like certainly the dragons are aware, but no one's they don't talk to people in general. So that's not important. The the giants, I've never thought of them as being like elven, you know, long lived. So I doubt they're doing anything. So let's let's focus on um, what is going to happen. So if the world's going to get brighter, much brighter. Oh no! All I think you need to say on the dragons is that they are worms in the sense of worms. They don't have to be earthworm like, but they are. Again, part of the natural cycle. As things flourish, they will wake up and start to unearth and emerge from their their hordes, their collections as they mm-hmm. forward. Oh yes, they are they are very much yeah. So they're they are their rapaciousness is part of this cycle too. It's the awakening of legends. Yeah, that's in, 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 in yeah, the time of legends is coming back. So life is gonna get a lot more bountiful, but not the life we're used to. In other words, everyone who relies on those crops that can grow during the night, they're out of luck. If we're talking dwarves, I see highly. So I guess there's there's a question here. If the sky above and the, and up with the ground below are both amenable to those that prefer low light to no light, how much of their society would emerge during those periods of night? Oh, I think the light? dwarves are largely untouched. They're stolid. They're they, the one of the reasons they live underground is because it means that the day night cycle largely doesn't affect them. But they they so what they call them yeah they send out they send out outcasts or automatons or other things that are not or some, something that they can control, observe, or engage remotely through. Yeah, they're if anything, the only thing they're going to be doing that's going to change their behavior at all. For those few kingdoms that have uh, enough records to really know to prepare. They're going to be bolstering their defenses. Oh, but their defenses are intricate arrays of underground mirrors and other things that also serve during the night cycle as a way of observing. Yes, because, because the thing is, if the humans are going to need to go anywhere to escape the light, there are, there are only two places they can go. They can go north for, or south, depending on where you are. But let's just say north because everyone's familiar. Or they can go underground. But underground is taken. I can... I can actually see the dwarven communication system having a couple layers. There's the one they use to communicate with other people. And those are the, you can actually see like the, the, the dwarven pneumatic tubes or light arrays that they reflect to the surface. But then there's also the sound based systems that are too deep and too low for most other kinds to hear. And that's what they use to communicate among themselves, particularly when this time of immigration occurs. And they, so, so those, established dwarven kingdoms are going to be getting insular because they know what's about to happen. They don't hate everyone else, but they... But they don't have... They, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they don't hate them. They just know they're going to be coming in. And that, and uh, desperate people are not known for asking nicely. No, and they're going to have to eat a lot of fungi and a lot of brood fungi, which is going to make them a little more... Mm-hmm. So you've got that going on. So if the world... So more life's happening in the world, which means it's getting fundamentally more dangerous. So so let, let's break it down, I guess, by cycle. You've got... You've got False Dawn, which is the first arc. It's the, the elves admitting everything's coming back and we're starting to see signs. Then you've got the first signs of this new sun as it slowly gets brighter and life just gets more abundant. It also gets harder to be outside. It's starting to get a little painful, but life is getting abundant. And the real problem is holding back the forests that are regrowing and the swamps and everything that's regrowing. And if you're not near one of the cities or one of the areas that's built up, you're going to get overrun. Well, I guess that's the question is if you're looking at things that thrive in low light and darkness, what are civilizations made of what do humans build their towns and their lives i i guess and i guess the fundamental question is are we talking about a fantasy world where it's 
it has been a perpetual night, or are we talking about it like, and with all that that entails, are we talking about a fantasy world where there are, well, if we've got this, if we've got this long a cycle of day and night, uh, well, we've got a lesser day and I night. I think if it is a fantasy world, a perpetual night, then humans cannot be like humans because they have to be able to see or find it. Right. I'm thinking, I'm thinking there is a, there is a lesser sun and then like, there's a, well, Okay, there's two things. There's either a lesser sun or there's a source of light underground that humans have to trade for and with. It provides them with the means of God. Well, I mean, here's the thing. If you're, and this is where you get into a very important decision from a campaign setting. And that is, are you trying to start with a strange world or are you trying to surprise the, the players as the story goes on? If you're, if, I think if you want to, well, I guess in this, to answer my, to your question, I ask another one, which is, are your players new to this kind of game? Particularly if they're, if this is their first time playing a game like this, I think it would be better to situate them in an experience that is as human. Right. Possible. And so, so in other words, it's the, it's the latter one. It's the, the surprise the minute the game goes on. So the world, as we describe, it may not be as bright as the world, world that we are living in now, but it is, it is bright enough that you can describe it in familiar terms. So there is a lesser you can say day and night. Right. Mean the things that we so, so there will be a lesser sun that provides a day and a night. There will be crops that grow under the lesser sun that the, that humans have been have been growing. The world maybe it will be darker, but the, to the people in this world, they would have no concept of the fact that it's somehow darker. Weather patterns would be more... Oh, quite possibly. Uh, that would be a very good one. So when this greater sun comes back, the, the human civilization would look a lot like a standard uh, human fantasy civilization because they'd be chopping... A lot of pastoral setting. Right. If anything, it would probably look a little more run down because uh, they're, they're dealing with plants that don't grow as well. And you can play that up in themes, uh, but it won't be immediately obvious. It's nothing that should be spelled out. Feudal lords and malnourished hmm? peasants. Feudal lords and malnourished peasants. And oh, yeah, exactly. And, then, and even play up the fact that it always seems like there's not enough to go around. Make that a, a major feel. And that, of course, seems to be one of the major threats. The world's changing. Which is why... Of course, you ally yourself or align yourself with the forces that can provide the mm -hmm. uh, um, Yeah, go definitely. Actually, you know, I think what we do is we have an arc or a prologue before this where that is the thing of concern. You set them, go yeah. It, it, yeah, villagers appealing to their local world. Uh, you, you know me. I, I when it comes to D and D settings, one of the things that bugs me no end is when you when people make a first level character and they're like an established hero already. And it's like, hold on a second here. I I almost want to make them all from the same village, whatever those relationships are. And something has not even anything encroaching from the changing sun or any of that yet. Just something normal that's broken. Right. Oh, do it like this. One of the things that happens, the feudal lords demand not tribute, but they demand able bodies. They need like these villages have to provide people. As well, so it's along the lines of you look, uh, you know, you know, son, you, your father's got to work the farm. Uh, I I got no time to take to pick up my sword and go and defend, you know, in this fight or that. You're the one who's going to have to do that, and 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 so the, the 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 kid is given his father's armor and sword and sent out into battle. With, he's his father may have trained him up a little bit. So this is how you have your fighter, but he's not seen real combat other than maybe that one time a drunk you know a, a drunk goblin or to attack the cows. You could have someone. You could have a, a bard, for instance, be someone who is put to work in the Lord as a servant or as a. And the only thing you have to do is make this village special. Uh, maybe it's special, maybe it's not, maybe a lot of villages have this, but I like the idea that this is a unique aspect of this village. They, it has an elf living with them. Uh, he's been there as long as anyone can remember. Uh, in fact, with a few, you know, when, when he's willing to talk to people and he talks about remembering their grandparents, remembering their grandparents' grandparents. It is the classic trope of the head wizard, the head wizard. Right. 
the stranger who lives on the outskirts that isn't like everyone else, but everyone goes. Yeah, exactly. Because because he, he's good for farming advice. Elves, elves, no. Now I, I want to rule this out when the invasion, when the invading alien empire comes down with their sky battleships, and he doesn't pick up his katana and defeat all. The <laughs> monster, right? He's not. No, we're not doing anything like that. Oh my god. Yeah, no. But then he can be the person that's like, wait, he's acting really strangely, like stranger than usual. Because even if we're doing the Hedgewitch on the edge of town, the idea is instead of being the the outsider, no one trusts. Oh, everyone talks about him like he's strange, but he's invaluable. He's saved more than a few years of crops. He is. He or she is as much a part of the village as the oldest exactly. in this. Exactly. And if, so when this person, like when this change starts happening and this person's behaving differently, that's the scary moment. And uh, that's what they come back to find whenever they're done, dealing, you know, doing whatever stupid. Right. Because that, that first arc is that first arc is satisfying the local, pow- local power authorities demands. And then when they return to the village. Things have gone. So to, to put this in terms for anyone who's looking to create their own campaign, the first arc is establishment. It's about setting a picture of what this world is like, not in intricate detail, but in enough that people know what like what they're what they think they're going to expect. The second arc, no matter even if you, even if you're not going to do this world ending, you know, you know, shakeup, your second arc is always change the game and go. Oh, you thought you knew. This falls closely in line with the, an approach to short storytelling in particular, although you'll see it in shows like The Simpsons quite often, too. Jason Arkell, one of my writing teachers who studied with Uno Diaz and George Saunders and a lot of other really fascinating people, he said, if you want people to believe, you start by establishing the ritual, creating the life of the mm-hmm. character, and then you find a little way, or even a big way, but just a way to break it. And it doesn't have to be catastrophic. There's a great short story called, strangely enough, The Great Tandolfo about a magician who is going to a party to perform his magic tricks. The twist is that the mother of the child is the woman he once loved. And he has gotten his funny little mind as this goes around that he's going to propose to her. And he has ordered a cake and everything because he lives a sad, lonely little life. And you keep on wondering throughout this entire story what's going to become of that cake. I'm not going to tell you. But everything else about this poor man's life has come to a breaking point. Despite everything that you think has been set up as the norm, all the disappointments being... Uh, there's so much time spent on his the disappointments of his life being the norm and the ritual. But the one that actually breaks him is just... And his act of violent revenge and reprisal is so fascinating in, in response to that. But that, that idea that you have to let the players and the characters vote Find out who they are and why before you challenge that. So, yeah, exactly. So first arc, let them define. Second arc, it breaks up expectations, but it's still letting them define. So the elves aren't acting the way they're supposed to, but it just seems like another adventure. And, you know, with the threat of the end of the world. It strikes me, we did this in Academy World when it was just you and, and, and Pablo initially. So much of that, of that arc was just, here's school life. Here are your rivals. Here are your friends. Here are your faculty. And then, and, and, and then Stephen's character broke it all up. <laughs> well, and then you guys went on your first quest, as it were, to find things for class to get, receive a passing grade and started to break both yourselves and the world over the mm-hmm. time. Until Stephen arrived and said, "Oh, a world-shaking artifact! That's yeah. my heart." So, yeah. So the 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 second mission would be the the one where the elves seem to be trying to bring about something. Only it turns out they're not bringing it about at all. The the it's a it's a well really quickly it's a normal story that seems to still be letting the characters define themselves, but it comes with the twist at the end. You're not winning. You didn't save the day. There's no day to be saved. Here's what I'm thinking of, and I'll give you an analog to give you an idea of where I'm going with it. In Dragon Age 2, there's a revolutionary mage who's been possessed by demons, although he says he's better. And one of the final quests he asks you to work with him on is called Justice. Mind you, that's the name of the spirit that has possessed him. So you think, as he's trying to convey to you, that this is about excising that demon from his body permanently. And he says, I just need these ingredients to cure myself. Ah, naphtha, 
the, all this other stuff, and you're going, wait a minute, those are the ingredients to gunpowder. And he needs a lot of it. But it's, it's magic requires a lot of expensive things, particularly for really dangerous work, as established in the first game, when you try to cure a child of possession, and a great sacrifice of some kind is involved. So this isn't surprising. Okay, this is all dangerous, but yes. And of course, this is a spoiler. What ends up happening is he blows up the entire church in that city. He instigates the war to follow. Because what he's after, of course, is justice. In that same sense, they come back to the village after the ward has given them or released them from their duty, and their elven friend asks them to acquire something or do something, a favor. That's something they wouldn't think about or think about the second time. And it's only as they begin to acquire it or they come back with it, they start to wonder. Mm-hmm. And really play up that why and turn them against the elves. So, because there's, because there's nothing that's going to turn heads faster than upending. Like you've turned them once. They thought they could trust the guy. Now they can't. That second twist. Well, it's not about, it's not even about trust. What you thought he was up to is not even what he's up to. Things are going to change and there's nothing you can do about it because it's not in your power. It's not in anyone. Which means. Your entire life and understanding of him, he had this in mind. Exactly. This was and and then make and and then the next arcs they become an intermittent source of wisdom, a comfort and a terror all in one. They're not going to do anything absolutely horrible, but they're going to be callous because to them nothing bad's happening. Their unwillingness to right. Then I would say if you go for a third arc. I, I wouldn't set up how it has to happen, but the third arc should end with the village's destruction. And the reason is twofold. One, it's establishing that life is upending. Give them a struggle for a while to save the village. Let them have a few victories. But finally, one threat comes along that's too much. But the- This is why I'm a monster. This is why I'm a monster and not just the players of my games. Yeah. You're saying this, and I go, oh, yeah, goblin horde, something that little of a, it's the invasion of things that have emerged from the darkness. It's the dark spawn, it's the orcs, it's the, the horde has come, the things that have gone in on earth that the evil overlord pushes. But again, we're talking that right. cycle. So yeah. it's, it's the plants coming, it's the, let it end with. It's, it's the goblins as locusts, and what ends with is the dragons. Yeah, yeah dragons was exactly what I was thinking too. Because. Just a dragon coming down to eat the horde of locusts. Mm-hmm. And eventually they get pushed out. In the twofold purposes, one to show life is changing and, 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 and it's, and it's happening too fast to stop. You're not, t- again, drive home the point. You're not dealing with like some prophecy, right. not in that sense. But the second reason is, you also have to, it's, it's that point in the story to shake things up anyway. D&D has a progression. And one of those progressions is you slowly grow in scope. Be as your characters grow in, in power. I do think it's important here to know because this can become an incredibly difficult point of narrative to run in actual play. We're talking about how this could go down, but the experience of, yes, we've saved the day. Oh shit. What the fuck is that? Why did you do this to us? Where is this coming from? can be a difficult one to make real without invalidating the sacrifice, the victories and sacrifice of the players. Yeah, I, I think maybe invoking the rule of threes would be the right way to go. So three major stories to save the village, one with the plants growing out of control, one with the, I don't have a second. No, 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 the second one's not the locust because the third one's the locust because I love your idea of ending with the dragon coming down to eat the locust. Yes. But then if the because that's the right. Point. But that happens at the end of the third story. That is the one that it gets taken away. Okay, so here's, here's where the rule of three applies. First, there is abundance. And that's a good thing because it's something we didn't have before. We don't have to rely on the feudal lord or lady for water, for food, for things we... Oh, I like that. That's, that goes especially well with when the dragon takes it all away. Who do you have to go to? So divide up right there, and that, that sets a really good tone. So let them decide whether they want to thumb their noses at the mm-hmm. end or double down and say something's wrong. Then the second one is the slight twist, the inclination that is too much of this. The monkey's paw is going to deliver something else here. The horde is the third, and the end of the horde is the thing that eats everything else. It's the worm that it's the conqueror worm. And that is the point of no return. I, I actually like the idea of there being a haunted area somewhere near the village. 
that was a threat, bring it around as a threat in the first one, uh, and establish in that first game with the abundance, oh, there should still be a threat. Or maybe establish it in the second game that the undead have stopped rising or something like that. And then momentary bit of respite in the middle of a much bigger threat. <laughs> nice. No. But yeah, because I, I was just trying to think of uh, what would be the natural enemies. I do think more abundant wildlife. Well, this is classic Princess Mononoke. It's the things become too much. They become more. They, well, this is. Oh, yeah. Oh, I like that. A boar. Let, let it be. A, let, let's just steal a page from Princess Mononoke. It's a boar. That'll be the, that'll be the first or second. You could even have, I don't know, because I'm thinking you could even, depending on the culture of this village, maybe there is a hunt and what they find is the boar that's too much. Yeah. The second one has to be a threat to the village, but it needs to be fought off. It can't be an invasion like goblins because that's going to be the third. I think with the encroachment in the first, you get the hunt. And so the first arc, the first of the three is abundance, which starts with the plant life, but ends with the hunt that you find the world, the wild beast that is too much. Oh, and I have a twist on that then. The first one's abundance. The second one is famine as as it's getting, as the crops start to die, as they're not used to this much light or as the weeds that are coming through are choking them out. And so that's what, what prompts the hunt the, to go after that with the boar that is too much. So if they find the boar and then the things that feed on the weeds, the stuff that you can't eat are the goblin hordes, the orc, the, the undivided, the, the unnameable thing that was not before. The end of which is that which devours them. The other possibility with them, and it could be, a, it, it could is they're they're getting they're they're attacking because they're getting chased out. They knew about the dragon, you didn't. So they're, they're exactly they're running and they've run to a place that they're hoping is far enough away, and it's not. Which is why they're so desperate and willing to fight to the death, and that makes you desperate in turn as you try to save what you can. You get that victory, whatever that victory is, and let the players define and decide. Yes. You let them set their victory conditions. And then however they've set them, whatever victory they've taken, you don't take that one away from them. Whatever the dragon comes and does, it will force them out of the village, but it'll attack on the side they didn't claim victory on. So if they manage to take the, the, the orc chief's, you know, head or something like that and drive the orcs back, if they manage to save all the village children, the elders, right. they decide is important. If they drive the orcs back, the dragon will land, and it'll start eating the orcs. And in the middle of eating, it will look up at the village, like with a piercing stare, and then turn back to eating, eating the orcs, and it'll keep looking at the village. And, and everyone's realizing they're next. Well, you know what it is? It's like when you go to a zoo and you have this... You have a tiger on the other side of the mm-hmm. fence, and the only reason it's quiet is because it's been fed. Exactly. And this, is, but this is a dragon. Dragons are rapacious. There is no feeding mm-hmm. a dragon enough. No, and it's been hungry for the time or sleeping. And if you manage to rescue all of the people and evacuate the town from the orcs, the dragon's going to land in the middle of it, and you start planning your counterattack. You've set up in a cave nearby or something like that, and, you, and you're and you planning. That's when the dragon lands, and you realize you're not getting the town back. Whatever that is, once they have their victory, show them the thing that was inevitable. Anyway. Right. Just don't take away the victory. Show the inevitable, the other, whatever whatever way they took victory. Use where use the sacrifice they made to show the dragon. They could they could even try to save their elven friend and have them go. But I was so looking forward to being eaten tonight. He might be, or he might go run back. Or like if you were if you want to drive up, how strange the elves are. If you want to keep them normal, but I have to talk with my friend. That too, or oh look, I can finally harvest that. He's talking about the scales, or they have a conversation, or he's patiently waiting for the dragon to finish eating so they can have exactly. And it's like you knew this was going to happen, and you didn't warn anyone because to him, the dragon's a friend. Then it's you two are or pets, even or whatever that relationship. You two are as alien and monstrous. Yes. Exactly. Oh, well, if I was going to drive home anything to do with pets, 
The elf and the dragon would be friends because they're both long enough lived to get each other. The humans were always pets. And that's what they don't understand. Mm -hmm. Uh, Exactly. And draw that divide out. Again, this is the orc. You know me. I'm not big on the orcs or the goblins or anything like that automatically being no, that's why, I, that's why I use the term loosely. It oh, well, no. I mean, because the thing is, if you wanted to, the orcs in this in this place running from a dragon are just a stand-in for another village. Or, uh, a, right, which makes you wonder whether the players or any of the characters will decide to save them or try to. Once they realize that these are just... These people are just as desperate as they are. Yes, I would love... I have, like... Again, that's one that you can't structure in advance. You have to see how the characters develop to see whether you're going to give them the opportunity. But but I agree with you. It, it, it doesn't. It does and it does not matter if they save because they have to live with exactly. But the the question of how you're going to present the orcs it depends a great yes. deal on how the characters make themselves. Right. Whether that is a thing that matters to them is something you have to discover. Exactly. And it would be actually fun if. When the orcs come in, the if a lot of people fall in the standard trope of, oh, well, they're just raiders. And only to think back over the entire campaign, I never once said that they were raiders or that you didn't get along with them or that anything like that. Let the tropes reinforce the play. Because particularly with newer players, they're going to have. Yeah. Oh, I'd like. And the, right. The, and the goal isn't to lure them into doing something that if they had known the information, you know, like they, 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 they did evil, but they, they wouldn't have done it if they had known the information. Again, to the point is, it's not about doing evil. It's right. These things, this is all. Evil. Exactly. And so. They didn't even know these people. They didn't even know orcs existed. Or if they did, they, they, they might have known, yeah, they're dangerous folk, but. You know, they, they, they didn't, so, so, so the idea that they'd attack isn't completely outside the bounds, but no one remembers them doing it. Right. So the, the idea that they could attack isn't out of the bounds, but the idea that they have an R and will. Right. So, so yeah, I don't want to set it up like, oh, they were secretly, you know, really they were just coming for aid and there was a language barrier. I wouldn't pull that on the players. That's not the theme of this game, but I would pull the idea of, you could actually have talked with them. Like, I wasn't telling you you had to, but things would have gone differently if you had. Granted, the dragon still would have attacked. Right, you might have eaten one of the characters and then someone else is playing the <laughs> If they wanted to. If they wanted to. Again, these are. this is where the story happens within the lives of the players. Ex- exactly. And planning... And, and planning more than, like, three arcs in would be difficult anyway, because the things the characters do are going to be the foundation for a lot more that happens. <laughs> do you know how much planning I <laughs> But I will, I will say this. There are still touchstones we can put in place. I would say one of them would be by the time the characters get back to the Lord uh, or the kingdom or whatever it is, start drawing in the tensions with the, with the dwarves be- and, and start... Show and, and st- you you have an ambassador there because the authority that be, whether it is a religion or an organization, whatever negotiates on behalf of humanity, will be an argument with the dwarves over letting mm-hmm. them And the dwarves are having none of it. They're again, they're not against humans, but they don't have the resources. And this is their their kingdom. I, I still I still love the idea of a dwarf so reclusive that they don't actually write, but they either send an emissary or have an elaborate Rube Goldbergian and contraption through which they will only only through which they will communicate. Oh, I I, I, I think that that would make a lot of sense. I would say you have the dwarves that live in the mountains, and then you have the dwarves that live uh, deep underground, um, like the the Draugr. As is that the term? Oh, good. Durgar, Durgar, Draugr are undead. The Durgar uh, are known as the Dark Dwarves, but in this case, they're not. They're they're not any more evil they're, they're, than anyone else. They're just they don't want to be bothered because they they know what happens, so they've receded further. I would say, given the fact that we're playing at the elves welcoming the sun, leave the Drow out of it. Not because they have no place, but because it muddies the waters. In a way, yes and no. The, the only reason I'd have something. There's a couple of reasons. One, the drow are, unlike elves, particular to Wizards of the Coast, Hasbro, TSR, Dungeons and Dragons, etc. Uh, so they are, as much as they're part of the common fantasy parlance now, their origins are highly bound into forgotten. Yeah, so there's no reason to bring them in. 
But that doesn't mean you can't have a, an elf here or there that is against what the majority of them are up to, if that feels like a natural yeah. thing. Yeah, it's also possible that there are other elder races that are nocturnal, to put another term on it. And are equally displeased about Yeah, that. but but they they still consider it natural. It's just time for them to go to sleep. But they don't want to be, they don't want people on their doorstep when they're going to sleep. No, so it'll be as if not more reclusive than the dwarves, they'll probably be the first to flee. And that might be the first sign of them. That might be an early sign, too, that these things that once were just a natural part of the strangeness of the world disappear. Oh, yeah. Let's let's call them walkers. They're, they, they only came out at night anyway. They were said to be signs of bad luck. Are you populating the night streets with slender men? I was specifically wanting it to not be a slender man-like uh, like <laughs> character. Oh, Candle Jack. I was actually thinking a little bit more like a uh, a Bigfoot, but like a little more live or, you know, to, to because we want this to be a bit sylvan looking. But I, I we're, 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 we're looking over we're, we're looking at really excited that high the lycanthropic or the shape shifting kinds of peoples to the cycles that exist when the sun is not when the eye is not awake, because that. Whatever influence that cycle of day and night that most people know has one influence, but the permanency enforced by the sun, the real, the full sun awakening, destroys the cycle of the lives they know too. And they could be, they don't necessarily have to be as short-lived per se as no, no. We'll keep them sylvan. They they still know this. They're they're going into hibernation or something like that. And yeah, I like that because I was already talking about like furred creatures being the walkers. They're animalistic. And, uh, just simpler than that, they're the druids. Yes, it doesn't matter what the druid was before a druid is right. Druid. But they're. But we're talking like the we're, we're we don't want druid like oh there's some you know really balanced people we want druid like yeah these are the things that spill blood in the night. What I, I kind of like the idea is that playing off of our earlier conversation for this recording about mystery cults, anything or anyone could become a druid, but that ritual changes them. So it plays a bit off of the idea of lycanthropy and tying yourself to the cycle of the world as it is as a way to survive in it. But that also means becoming incredibly vulnerable, like a vampire almost, to that true and brightest sun. Then that's also what the undead are. Anything that can't survive yeah. the sun. So in that sense, maybe the undead aren't a horror. They're just a part of the world, too. They're the things that walk at night. And, and in fact, play it up like this. Instead of the classic fantasy undead, this, you know, just, oh, they're the ghosts or the, the bodies of people – the undead are actually the things that can animate those bodies. So all the, the talks of skeletons and ghosts, that's caused by these walkers. I, I like the name walkers. Well, it's the spirit itself and the sun. Right, well, right. But, but, but the idea is it isn't the souls of the dead that are climbing back into their bodies and crawling out of the grave. The walkers are animating the things around them. So the legends of the undead aren't actually undead. They still trace back to those walkers. So that we and who do you have that could exercise the uh, the walkers or the undead, whatever it is, but the druids, those who most closely understand that these are spirits? And if they want to exercise them, some of them, I think, I think, I think we're drawing a false line. I think some of the druids are walkers. I think that's one aspect of being a druid. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's twi that's a twist here is that they'll ask for a price. That price could be anything from a simple blood sacrifice to one of your children becoming mm -hmm. them. And it might be that this is part of the natural progression. Eventually, their change, their transition allows them to transcend the bodily form. And so one of the things that I'm seeing is we've got all of these different sources of wisdom and they all come with a price. And so it might, almost seems like there needs to be a bit of a slower burn. Uh, well, we're running out of time today it, 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 for, for today's session anyway, but let, let me share this one before the end. This may be something we come back to, but a slower burn on that knowledge that the sun is coming back because all of the people that can tell you this, there's a cost associated. And I think that's the, once they've been chased away from the village and they want to find things out more, 
then they start to understand the real cost of what they're going. So, through. in other words, in the in the second arc, when the elf is celebrating and bringing about something that seems like it's the end of the world, he won't say anything about it being the sun coming back. He won't say what's changing. He'll just say, "We're not. I'm not bringing about anything. It's already coming." But he doesn't say what it is because he doesn't really feel like explaining. Well, not just that. I wouldn't even describe it. This is so normal to him. How it's like it's water to fish. Yeah, like if he says he he's probably no he's probably been through this before, and he knows if he says the sun is coming back, they're going to go. Yeah, I know it's almost morning. No, no, I mean the sun is coming back. The hell are you talking about? He or she either doesn't have the words or doesn't know the right ones that would work for this time. Or really is so kind of celebratory that he really doesn't want to sit down and figure them out at this moment. Right, because their time's almost over anyway. There'll be new ones mm-hmm. enough. And that might be a sort of joy in its own sense. But the the idea that yeah, the what because when you by the time you introduce the idea of cost and pull, they should be seeking out the thing they will have to pay a price for. They should be aware, they should have some understanding that things come at a cost, but it should come. So this is, Full Metal Alchemist is a, an old series at this point. But one of the things they introduced to you early on, in the, and this is from the old lore of alchemy itself, all is one, one is all, this idea of equivalent exchange, that for everything given, something else is taken mm-hmm. away. And that's from the first episode is introduced. But the depth of that very simple principle and precept is not truly revealed until you're too far in and you realize you've already paid. On that note, I would bring in the I would bring in the walker or the druid, whichever one it is. Maybe the walker makes a good first threat in that in that set of three threats. But the druid, who may or may not be the walker, I don't know. That that's that's something for later, will be through there through all three of the threats as that source of wisdom that you can pay for, but the payment comes steep. Well it, you know, it should come simple at first. Maybe people are used to these wandering shaman like characters, these druids, these ones who arrive at times to advise and help. Or but they always like a tinker, there's always a trade involved. And maybe I think that's the best way to make them innocuous, make them like a tinker. It's always about a trade. Oh, I no, I've got a perfect thing. There's no escalation in the price. None whatsoever. The es- It's variable. Every- no, no, it's, it's even better. It's going to be the same price every time. But what did we set up for the three? The first was a, a period of abundance. The second one, the tweeds were choking out the food. The third, you're under attack by the orcs. If the price is, let's say for the sake of argument, a bushel full of corn. It's a price that's already a price that is easily paid in the first arc, hard to pay in the second, and damn near impossible in the third. Yeah, and he hasn't changed his price at all. And now you're saying something about the world. Yes. So I think we shall leave it at that. That is... (laughs) Oh, if only Pablo was here to respond to that one. So on that note, I hope we've given you all an indication of the kind of thoughts that go into building a campaign from a single idea, the moments that we embrace an idea and the moments we take an idea that we liked and throw it out in favor of a new one. And there will be a lot more of that before this one was ready to, you know, really to go. When I was teaching, this is something we call ideation, and it's the... This is the part where you winnow out a little, but mostly you just let it come down or you lay, you lay it out. This is the creative process, and the, this is actually exemplary of what the creative mind is like. It's not limiting. We don't call. We simply provide, and eventually there's a harvest to follow. We'll get there, but not right now. In fact, even as the game is running, you're going to be seeing things that need to be tweaked. Your players will present you with challenges that you didn't anticipate. So at this point, it's you're you're rolling your eyes because of all the stuff in Academy World that we presented you with. I'm rolling my eyes because of all the shit in Teleran that you presented me with. <laughs> Oh, those two things are separate. No, let's smash them together. <laughs> the Lord of Conflict is deciding to fight us. Fine, we'll undo the universe so he doesn't do <laughs> Actually, you did the one thing I wasn't expecting and, and allied yourself with him. Made the most sense. He, well, I wasn't. I was actually, you guys had such a fiercely independent streak. I was not expecting you to do any alliances whatsoever. It's, you a clear reason, and it's the most obvious one why. 
We weren't in <laughs> Despite his best efforts. So on that note, uh, I think we will leave you there for tonight. We may return to this one, but I think that next time we try to, to build an idea, we're going to be going with a different one, uh, one set in a modern setting, but you will hear more about that next time. So until then, I have been David Herman, a.k.a. Ramnesis of the Brothers Herman, and joined by... I'm still Jared Surf, host of Fury Divers and writer of a book by the same name. You can find me and it on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash my name. Well, I might change that to Fury Tigers soon, but that's for another night. I'm also on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and the Geekly Oddcast and Other Worlds, which we're both going to have to report for soon enough. A good story can excite us, yes. But the best ones, fiction or not, compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, you don't need to know everything right now, but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail. <laughs>